Welcome to week seven of the All We Hear is Purple podcast. I am Andrew Berg. Welcome to the third most mediocre Husky football podcast on the entire internet. Remember to subscribe, rate, review us on any podcast app now that we have that working. We're the official podcast of the Cody Pickett fan club, and I'm happy to say uh, that Gaby Lucas has returned this week after a week off to do a uh, religious sojourn, I believe, to uh, the holy city of Mecca. How was your pilgrimage, Gaby? Mm-hmm. Oh, well, no, it was the holy city of somewhere, Idaho. Where is Cody oh, yeah, Pickett yes. from? Is that getting weird? Okay, let's stop it. From metropolitan Boise, Idaho. Uh, <laughs> no, it was, why wasn't I? Why, I don't even remember why I couldn't. I think it was because the Huskies lost two weeks ago and you have a, a silent boycott of any podcasts following yeah. the loss. No, I had something. Oh, I was on. No, was I on? Some, I don't know. I couldn't. I had something going on. I think it might have been a show. I don't remember. Who knows? Um, well, Rob and I somewhat but, held it together, but we're glad you're back to talk about Arizona and, and more interesting things, uh, particularly mm-hmm. Oregon. But as as per the convention, we typically talk about the past first and the future second. So you ready to talk a little bit of Arizona? Hell yeah, I am. That do I, I, I feel like I sound like the least enthused person in the world right now, which is probably just... It is kind of weird my, to look back yeah. on, on a 38-point a second half and a 51-point scoring output and just kind of be like, hey, yeah, that was cool. Yeah, that was all right. Yeah. But that's kind of how it feels. Yeah. It's, it's, it's super different than the feeling at halftime. I, I wanted to thought about making a, a post this week of going through Twitter and doing halftime takes exposed <laughs> of the people who wanted to light like Bush that. Hamden on fire and and yeah. you know tar and feather our entire receiving core and I mean there was some some fairness to that I was pretty frustrated as well but I guess oh, that's totally. why they play second halves of games as well uh, absolutely Puka Nakua is kind of the hot topic today right it's he seemed to make a very large difference in three catches. Is that did that seem like the number one thing to you? Is there anything else that stood out offensively besides him? I mean, I certainly want it to be. There's a okay. There's a couple things that stood out, and obviously, I think all of us were kind of on the free Puka train, including myself at this point. So yeah, I mean, it was it was just so lovely to see you know that kind of production. But more more importantly, less I think it wasn't so much about the statistics. Because, you know, like Aaron Fuller was targeted more, but just seeing his physicality and being able to just out-muscle defensive backs, which is the exact opposite of what we're used to seeing from our receivers. Um, so, I mean, I, I mean that one that one catch that was, what, 40 yards or whatever? Um, yeah, the one down the left sideline. Yeah, yeah the, the one that we're all freaking out about. Uh, man, I, I mean, I wrote this in Stuff and Shenanigans, which, came out today when we were uh when we're recording this and will be tomorrow when this or yesterday when this um was published uh that pretty much yeah I don't I wouldn't trust Aaron Fuller and Andre Bocelli if if against Oregon secondary if they were our two main targets um but I do think that with if Puka is targeted significantly more um more 
uh, next week, which we'll talk about in a bit, that I also think it really helps as far as the other receivers like Fuller's production, just as far as being able to take that pressure off. Um, so seeing that was super great. Uh, there's I had a couple other things on the on the offense uh, from Arizona. If if we want to talk about those, uh, yeah, I, just before we, just we say, screw it. Before we jump off of the receivers, I, I one thing I keep coming back to is I feel I almost feel bad for Aaron Fuller and Andre Bocelli because I feel like mm. they're just miscast in the roles that they're playing, and totally. you can put that in the coaches. Yeah. And I mean, in some sense, this is true. In you know, anytime somebody's struggling, you know, the worst football player in the yeah. country, it's like, yeah, well, if he was playing in eighth grade, Pop Warner, he'd be really good. But yeah, like, okay, uh, they're on the team; they're scholarship players, but Bocelli flashed a little bit in the second half of last year when he was essentially functioning as a slot receiver with Fuller and Jones Mm -hmm. on the outside. And he was, we played a lot of zone defenses and he was kind of finding soft spots in the seams and and he had some really nice games. He was never a number one receiver and he shouldn't be and, or even a number two receiver and we're holding him to that standard and it's going really badly. And some of that is true for Fuller too. I think, it's he's you know he's been we expect more from him and he has been more productive although still in a kind of frustrating way uh sometimes you know he's getting like 12 14 targets or whatever and, and making six catches uh, yeah. but it's just not really fair to hold him to that standard and especially when the overall like in this game the, the passing offense did perform well overall yeah so yeah, yeah jump I, think, in. I mean i've talked oh go for it yeah, you you had some oh, things on the Arizona offense. I, I'd love to hear those as well. Yeah, well, I mean, first, just one last thought on the receivers, because um, uh, really this whole situation, and I've talked about this at length before, is really just a condemnation of Brent Tease as a recruiter uh, and Matt Lubick as a developer, because they should never have been in this position in the first place. I remember writing before Aaron Fuller even stepped foot on campus, uh, in like a little recruiting um, write-up over, you know, after signing it or something, uh, pretty much exactly what he was, which I said he was probably going to contribute early, but and he's going to be, he's a useful number two or number three, um, but he probably won't be physical enough to be a productive number one. And, you know, so that's that's not his fault. <laughs> but um, anyways, um, the one other thing that I really noticed as far as the the um you know i've talked about this at length that um most of what we the the washington finds themselves in uh as far as the receiver situation is more a condemnation of brent keys as a recruiter three four years ago than anything else um and i've kind of i feel like i'm kind of hitting a dead horse but it's not aaron fuller's fault per se you know that that he is forced to be a number one when he's not physically maybe that kind of player um or doesn't have that kind of uh, you know ability um and i wrote about this in 2016 right right about uh i think right after signing day or whatever that he i said he was probably going to play early and he's going to he should be a valuable contributor as a second or third receiver option but he's probably not physical uh enough to be a really reliable number 1 and, you know, I think that still holds true. And, and it's not his fault that there was such a gap in recruiting. Um, and, you know, so whatever. Um, yeah. We brought him in. Lastly, it's on us. We'll oh, live with yeah. it. 
Yeah, I, I still, yeah, I, I think he's he's still a valuable, you know, valuable contributor, and I think he will, if Puka Nakua um, does continue to receive uh, more focus within the passing game, I think I think that ultimately that benefits both of them a lot. Um, and then the one other thing I noticed about Washington's offense uh, in uh, the Arizona game is just it made me excited for the offensive line in the future which is kind of dorky and like just nerding out about like, Ooh, the 2020 line. <laughs> um, but seeing Mateo Mel, he was one of my favorite kind of under the radar ish recruits of 2018, but seeing him and Henry Banavalu step up and honestly do pretty darn good uh, is something where you look at next year and you're like, okay, well the line loses 60% of its starters um, and they still might be, Pretty great. Um, is there, uh, that's not anything really to take away to like talk a lot about right now, you know, because we want to talk about Oregon. But uh, it 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 was fun to to watch young players do better than you usually expect them to do in those kinds of positions. Um, and it should also be noted that Arizona's defense isn't total ass this year compared. I mean, by their own standards, they're ass compared to you know, Cal or Utah or UW standards, but I I was surprised doing my research on them before the game that they are only slightly terrible. Yeah, um, Rob and I talked so yeah. last week about what a weird defensive profile they'd had. Like they'd played all these teams really that weird. want to throw the ball 60 times a game. So it was kind of hard to mm-hmm. lock in on. They play, they've been playing these games at crazy pace and it messes up their raw stats. But when you look at it on a per play basis, it was actually pretty okay. Um, and yeah. if anything, there was a little bit of a soft spot in the run game, which we did exploit to the tune of, you know, 220 run yards, 210 rushing yards, uh, and and just selling out in the run game with almost twice as many runs yeah. as passes on the day. So it, it was an interesting, and I love that. I think that's that's a great way to, for our offense to set up. It plays to our offensive line strengths, and we have multiple really good running backs. So uh, hopefully we can kind of stick to yeah. that and stay ahead of the chains that way. Uh, defensively can touch on this quickly because I do think it there were a couple things on the defensive side that will impact the defense going forward against Oregon and afterwards, namely some of the personnel that we used. Uh, Cam Williams was out of the starting lineup. We heard late in the week that it was probably going to be uh, McKinney starting at safety, but we actually saw a lot more uh, Asa Turner and he looked great. He he's very disruptive and it yeah. seemed like he had very good instincts. Uh, and then we also saw um, some Ariel Nada uh, at inside linebacker on passing downs, particularly he ended up being our leading tackler for the game. So, you know, to those things, I, do you think that pretends anything different uh, after for Oregon or for later in the season? Is that going to make a meaningful difference in our outlook the rest of the way? Um, I don't, you know, I, I think it definitely, based on the eye test, it looked a lot more like a defense that you could trust. Um, and especially the just based on the skill set of Ariel Nada, um, and you know, and just his his body type, um, that I think that could be a really fun move. Who knows? I don't want to like uh, predict that anything, um, but I think that's that'll be something that's interesting to watch. I also think that Asa Turner was one of those. He just he looks instinctual in a way that this year's new starters haven't necessarily in the secondary and he missed he missed on a few tackles I think I want to say 
four by my count, um, including that last touchdown run where, uh, like, late in the game where I think it was J.J. Taylor broke, like, four or five tackles. Yeah. Um, but he just, he, he was in the right place at the right time, not coincidentally, more often than we've started to see from the um from the safeties and all that and so that was just something that was really encouraging to watch and i don't know if it's gonna immediately translate but i think it will it'll sooner sooner or later i mean it may maybe sooner rather than later you know yeah and he's he's had a, a penchant for getting involved in the in forcing turnover salmons or getting the turnover salmon and uh <laughs> even this game and before before this game uh we had you know three fumble recoveries if you count the uh block putt and recovery as one of them and uh, that's that is going to make a big difference in any game uh just before we move off of Arizona completely a funny stat uh from the game if you look at the box score on the Huskies official website for some reason they break down the running stats into gains and losses so for, it says that Khalil Tate on the day had eight attempts for 20 yards gained and 48 yards lost for a net of negative 28 so negative 48 rushing yards in any sense is horrific, but it just looks pretty funny, especially for somebody who runs as well as Tate. It kind of makes me wonder how, yeah. uh, you know, are we, our run defense has looked so terrible at times. And, you know, some yeah. of this was Ryan Bowman playing out of his mind and Joe Tryon getting the quarterback as often as he did. But the running quarterback didn't pose the threat that we may have feared he would going into the game. For sure. And I think a lot of that was just he. He's such a good athlete, and when he's on, he's on. But I feel like you couldn't, you can't count on him to be on for a full sixty minutes necessarily. I mean, yeah, it got worse as the game went on too. Stepping was, out of yeah. bounds, yeah, yeah, like stepping out of bounds instead of throwing the ball away, and it's like, dude, you're just cost your team six yards or whatever. Like, what? Why? Yeah. <laughs> you know? And so, I mean, obviously that adds to the statistics. Or, uh, yeah. But yeah, overall, it was definitely a. I mean, I don't. Everyone saw it. I don't need to say it that the the edge rush. And the, and the pass rush in general from the interior as well just looked way better. Um, Anytime a defensive lineman, know. or in this case an outside linebacker, tips up a pass to himself for an interception, that's on a very short list of coolest possible plays in a football game in my mind. There, there's almost nothing I would rather see than a defensive lineman just jump up and intercept the ball at the line of scrimmage. It's so cool. So it was hats so off to Ryan Bowman. There's, yeah, there's, yeah. It, this There's one had a lot of that makes me yeah. happier than yeah. It was up in the air for a long time. Human being. It looked like you know an outfielder catching a fly ball where he just kind of stood under it and waited for it to come down to him. Especially when you re watch the replay on slow motion several times, yeah. like I did. He looked like a cartoon character. Like yeah, a cartoon child. It was like what a, a play that Greg Gaines would have made, which me. is high high compliment. I know. I, know. I loved it. All right, the end. Right. Uh, well, yes, the end is right. So we'll we'll take a quick break for our advertisement segment, and we'll come right back with the important part of the show when we talk about Oregon. Namely, fuck them. <laughs> so welcome back. We are getting ready to preview the Oregon UW game. It's going to be a big one. We knew that at the start of the year. These were always going to be the two teams contending for the Pac-12 North. Uh, they still very much are. What is it, I think, going into it, if there's something that's surprising about Oregon this year, it's been how productive their defense has been and how, how they've limited everybody they've played since Auburn to single-digit points. 
What is it about Oregon's defense that has made them so successful this year? Um, well, so I haven't done like all, I haven't done all my research yet for the uh, defensive preview or anything, but I, I the little stuff I have seen, they, they look really balanced in a way that they haven't before. Um, there's it, it kind of reminds me of um, a less dominant version of of UW a couple years ago. Um, where Colorado was kind of going down the field at, le- at least the first half of the game and, and a little bit moving on, and just they just once they get within the I don't know thirty, twenty to forty yard line of of, of Oregon, um, where they're just really good at slowing them down there. And and I don't think there's any one part of their defense that's super dominant, but there isn't one part of their defense that's a weakness either. Um, and that's kind of the main thing that stood out to me is there isn't one thing where you look at it and you're like, okay, attack there. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I agree <laughs> with you. From, I, I think from what I have watched them, I'm also statistically, it is a lot of the being in the right position, uh, staying disciplined, playing smart, uh, which is having a system and adhering to it, which is consistent with what we've seen from the Huskies in past seasons. And Oregon has always had and recruited for team speed and built around really fast players. At some points in the past, that speed has got them in trouble because they'll, they over pursue or they, they run really fast mm-hmm. to the wrong spot. And they just haven't been doing it to the same extent this year. In fact, it's, it's kind of the opposite. They've been anticipating correctly and getting to the spot and not forcing a ton of turnovers. They've been solid at it. I, I did notice today they've forced 12 interceptions, which is good, but not outrageous and they've thrown one so that deficit is obviously hugely yeah. advantageous for them uh but that one was the the one that justin herbert threw in the red zone against al correct yes that's right i well yeah it's the only like, interception they've thrown all year i wasn't remembering uh, I, I, yeah. I think you're right um which is a crazy stat but they, they don't have anybody with a ton of sacks they don't i think they average about two and a half sacks a game as a team so it's it's not crazy pressure on the quarterback like I said, not crazy uh, turnovers, not a huge number of pass defenses. It's just like forcing offenses to string together long drives. And they're really good against the run. I think it's something like 3.1 yards per rush on the season and under five yards per pass attempt, which is just both really solid numbers. So they're kind of forcing offenses to be perfect against them as UW has done. And then uh, also like the really good UW teams, by everybody being in their position and doing things correctly, it kind of funnels the stats to where there are stats to be had, uh, like large tackle numbers or tackles for loss to the linebackers. And that shows up there too, where there are statistical outliers. It's mainly in their linebacking core because they're the ones racking up tackles on short runs or on short passes that teams can complete. So it's it's been just kind of a, a solid, consistent defense. Uh, I think it's a little bit weird that they've held teams to so few points because they haven't been uh, like just destroying anybody or generating a lot of negative plays. So that, that may correct itself to some degree, but I think either way, the moral of the story is the Huskies are going to have to be really smart and consistent. Like can't be dropping passes, can't be missing assignments on blocks, uh, can't be, you know, hitting the wrong hole as a running back, have to break tackles every now and then have to keep the pocket clean for Eason. It just can't, it can't be, kind of some of the boneheaded mistakes that have cost us in the two losses this year. Yeah, definitely. And I think, I think for what it's worth, 
up up until Colorado, there wasn't one defensive performance by them that I found super super impressive. Just because they, you know, it was Cal with Devin Monster, and then uh, Stanford and shoot, uh, Nevada. Nevada was a seventy-seven to three game. I think was the score. Yeah, that was nuts. Yeah. Offensively, that was nuts. Um, um, and so yeah, it has all been really impressive. But it wasn't until. Colorado, where I felt like, okay, I've seen you guys play a team that is actually offensively rather explosive, not dominant, but pretty explosive, um, and really kind of held them in, in check. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't think they're invincible, but I think if uh, you get the offensive line and receivers that we saw against um, Stanford, uh, yeah, yeah, that's going to be a problem. Yeah. <laughs> For you to, yeah. Well, and it's it's been clear to this point that there's a huge divide between Jacob Eason under pressure and Jacob Eason with time to read the secondary and plant his feet and use his strong arm. It's it's not it's a bigger gap than for most quarterbacks. So keeping him relatively clean, um, and you know this speaks to the offensive line as well as receivers actually getting separation and beating coverage, which might not be easy in this game. But all again, all the more reason to lean on Puka Hunter Bryant. Um, use play action, mm-hmm. throw off the run. Uh, those things are going to be really important. Yeah. On the other yeah, side, I think, yeah. I think play action. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. Just, I just think I think you're right about, especially about play action. Um, and I think that was something that was so great to see. Um, on this last Saturday, just because it felt like earlier in the year, uh, especially in Cal- against Cal and Stanford, that they'd kind of gone away from that, and it, it felt like I I'm not so much on Bush Hamden's, you know, I'm not so much on his ass as some fans are about like, oh, you can't call Bush. But I think there were times where he, it seemed like he was kind of panicking um, about, uh, you know, not establishing the run and just being like, oh shit, we have to pass it now. And like, no dude, like you have, you have four full quarters. Yeah. Um, so I think that's important for the game plan for Oregon, you know? Yeah, I do have, we, I, we didn't talk about it a lot, but I think he was shaken up a little bit when Richard Newton got hurt as well, because that was a dividing line in that Stanford game where the offense was kind of functional before that point and completely non-functional after that point. And Mm -hmm. we essentially just stopped running the ball after Newton got hurt. And we saw it again where there wasn't like a different back in Newton's place in the Wildcat uh, against Arizona. And we kind of screwed up a couple third and fourth and shorts early in the game before we kind of just like take a deep breath get a lead blocker in there and just run past the inferior defensive line. And it seems like it took him a little yeah. while, but he kind of adjusted and realized that you can just call normal plays uh, and, and use your athletic advantages at some points. Uh, don't have to rely on, on just the one player who's not available. We do have other good players as well. Uh, speaking of injured players, yeah. I think this is an important part of the Oregon game. We've talked a lot about their defense, not a lot about their offense. Uh, but Jacob Breland, who's been their leading receiver this year, the tight end, who's yeah. kind of been a security blanket for Justin Herbert, is going to be out for this game. It leaves them with – they already had a thin receiving core this year. Uh, they've got now, I think, two active receivers with double-digit catches on the year. Is that going to matter in this game? And and if so, what do you think – how do you, will that play out? I think I think that – I don't I don't know if, if – I don't – I don't think I don't trust their receivers uh, – necessarily but i really the man i don't wish anyone to be injured obviously because i'm not a monster but that really i think does help you'd have a lot because i mean if you look at the last 
honestly, probably, I mean, you look at Penn State in 2017, Stanford in 2017, um, even uh, the few times BYU had success this year uh, and Stanford this year too, mm-hmm. for what it's worth. Uh, really big targets has been their Achilles heel forever. And Stanford last year too, that was JJAW. Yeah, yeah. Um, especially you look at it because they'll, they'll hold them, I feel like UW will hold offenses like that uh, to third down so many times. And then when you keep converting these third and longs, but just checking it up to huge targets, um, like Jacob Reeland, um, it, it's so demoralizing. I mean, I don't know for the players, but as a, as a fan to watch that happen. Um, so I feel like that really takes away a massive weakness of Washington secondary. Um, so, you know, who knows if, I, it's not necessarily inherently a game changer by itself, but if he was healthy, I bet we would get a couple plays at least of ah shit that was. But remember that one time Jacob Breland got that one catch that we were about to get him off the field, and you know who knows if I think he could be when healthy a catalyst for significant developments for Oregon on the field, um, and yeah. I don't know. I think I probably just said the same thing about four times, so I will shut up. But well, you weren't wrong I, I any of those four guess. times, as long as you got it right first time. You can <laughs> yes. keep being right. But the, the, that leaves them <laughs> kind of an interesting note that Breland is, leads the team in receptions, huge lead uh, team in, in receiving yards, leads the team in receiving touchdowns. Uh, but oddly, as a six foot five, 250-pound tight end, also leads the team, at least among anybody who has significant playing time in average yards per catch. Uh, they have Johnny Johnson and Jalen Red are the two other healthy receiving threats who who have double-digit catches for any significant yardage. And they're both, they're at, Johnson's at 12 yards per catch and Red's at 10, which are pretty low numbers for wide receivers, which I think speaks to the fact that they've been very conservative with their play calling, or, or maybe very conservative is an overstatement, but more conservative than Oregon teams we've seen in the past, which is part of why Herbert uh, has one interception for the year. Uh, they're they're not airing the ball out as much. They're not uh, trying to run complicated routes. Uh, they're just trusting that they have this really talented quarterback who will make the right decision. And they've been successful running the ball with uh, you know a whole stable of running backs who all have different strengths. So maybe Breland not being there, it, it's kind of a key to their whole offensive strategy. It, it could actually make a difference. It'll be interesting to see how they adjust to that because he is, like you said, that one big receiver. They don't really have anybody who's played a lot this year who can replicate that skill. Um, we will still have trouble in the running game, I would presume. CJ Verdell, there were some, he left the game last week, yeah. but they, I believe, was practicing fully already this week. So he should be healthy and he's been very explosive for them this year. Uh, and then yeah. Die and Felix are well, both really productive running backs as well. Yeah. And for what, it, I mean, CJ Verdell ha- kind of haunts my nightmares after last mm-hmm. week's game. Like, it's hard to tackle, especially, yeah, especially given UW's, um, you know, their defensive weakness this year. Um, but yeah, it it really does. I hate saying it helps that Breland's out because you're saying, oh, it's great that this child effectively has been injured, and that just sounds so slimy. But, but I mean, if you're looking at it purely from an on-field perspective, yeah, I mean, it it that really does help Washington and their defenses strengths and weaknesses a lot well i think it's fair to say like we don't we're not saying that 
because he chose to go to Oregon, he deserves to be injured. Yep. But I can say I'll feel less bad when it does happen. <laughs> yeah. It just, I feel like there's no way to talk about injuries uh, about that are on your rivals' teams without sounding like a total douchebag. Yeah. And I am just concerned enough about what other people think of me to not want to sound like that. But you know what? I don't think there's that many Oregon fans listening to this, so I think crisis averted. I will say there's a big gap for me between how I talk about opposing players getting injured and how I think about opposing players getting injured in my head. And I don't think I'm the only one who has that same distinction. So I'm just going to stop talking about it as well and move on to the fact that, remember last year when we lost to Oregon because Peyton Henry couldn't make a field goal, and this year, Peyton Henry can't miss a field goal. Well, Oregon, for the year, is two for five. You're tempting fate, goal. my dude. I'm, I'm pointing out statistics. Oh, yeah. Peyton Henry hasn't missed a field goal all year. Oregon's kicker is two for five. No, on but the way goal. you phrased it. Oh, because I said he can't miss. That's fair. It. He hasn't missed. It this yeah. Point. Statistically, you he has not asshole. missed. Um, no, I have faith in Peyton Henry. Yeah. I talked so much trash about him last year, and he's converted me, and I've made, taken every opportunity uh, on the blog and on this podcast to say good things about him. And I'm going to keep doing that because he uh, talked about positive mental visualization and that has fixed him. And now he's perfect. Yeah. Oh, I wasn't even calling you. An, I was calling you an asshole because you're going to jinx it. But yeah, sure. That too. Um, no, I, this is going to be the part, part where I, yeah. and I'm leaning into the jinx. <laughs> this is going <laughs> to, this is going to be the part where I jinx it or not. We're not where I jinx it. Where I uh, where I toot my own horn and say that I spent most of last year uh, defending Peyton Henry's honor, but uh, yeah, no, that I okay. I have a question for you. Would you rather Washington just okay? Well, this is kind of a stupid question because obviously the answer is the former. But for thought experiment's sake, would you rather Washington just destroys them like seventy to twenty one style again, or it's twenty-one twenty-one closing seconds of regulation. Peyton Henry redeems himself, eh? And then, as the as, you know, as the clock winds down, uh, game-winning field goal. You know, it's not that obvious. Question, obviously, we would both rather. Have the I'm not. I'm not sure. I think oh. the the clearest reason I would rather have the former typically would be for like poll-related reasons that it's going to be better for us to to do that but i think that would the the second scenario would be super fun to watch i'll be at the game and i think it would make it a really fun game to watch and also more memorable um and also more heartbreaking for oregon fans uh more opportunities just uh great opportunities for trash talk and and winning a close game this year uh it's not like it's gonna matter we're not gonna make the playoffs this year anyway with two losses so why not just do it in the most painful way possible for the, the rival? Uh, oh. I think it's at least close. I like that. Yeah. Uh, I, I'll, I'll take either one. I like that. You know what? Yeah. I like that. Because, yeah, you give them the hope and then just steal mm-hmm. it. Because that was why last year hurt so much. Right, yeah. Okay. I mean, it also hurts yeah, to, yeah, to lose by 50 this. points. We've been there too, but then you just go home early and pretend it didn't happen and don't yeah. show up on the podcast next week. Yeah. Was... See, my whole thinking was just blood pressure related and, and stress. I know, it would be very stressful. I it and it is terrible. Although I will add then that... you have the strip, but then... Yeah, from that thought, I I did notice earlier today that I'm more excited for this game than I have been for any game all year and realized it's not just that it's Oregon, it's that I don't feel the weird sort of pressure of 
feeling like we're supposed to win. We're not favored. We're three point underdogs. Um, I think, you know, going into it, I'm, I'm guessing most people will be picking Oregon to win. So having less to lose, you also have more to gain. I think it'll be fun to watch a game from that perspective for the first time in a little bit, you know, we get favored pretty often except yeah. in bowl games. Yeah. Since- yeah, and even twenty the last time you can say it was like really I mean twenty fifteen obviously Oregon was favored by ooh, how much was that? I don't know. I wanna say like seven or something like that had been it was like the least it had been in a very long time. But yeah, I yeah. It's been a while. So that that's I, I think we've we've run through kind of the emotional gamut of all possible ways to feel about this game mm-hmm. before, during, and after. So let's talk a little bit about the rest of the conference before we wrap up. We've got another big game, kind of a mirror image of this game, but probably with less history behind it, between Utah and Arizona State. Also two ranked teams, also uh, kind of playing to become the presumptive favorite to make it to the conference title game from their division. Uh, do you have a strong feeling one way or the other in this one? Or, you know, I, I think Utah's a pretty significant favorite, possibly because they're at home, possibly because Vegas is still viewing Arizona State as a bit of an overachiever. Do you think the Sun Devils have more than a puncher's chance in this one? Um, I don't think – I would not bet on them. I think they could make it stressful for a little bit. Um, but I think I think also when you look at the wins that they have and the style that they have, I think they kind of remind me of Cal this year, where they're kind of the, the sneaky team more than anything else. Um, so I could see them finishing up ranked, but I could. I, I mean, you also look at they they barely beat Wazoo, who's kind of. I mean, Wazoo's. I think Wazoo's kind of. We don't know how mediocre they are, so it could end up being a good win or not. Um, but yeah, I think. My gut is really saying Utah, but I think I think if Utah plays sloppy, then I think then that totally opens it up for Arizona State, and I think I think that's something that's reasonable to expect if if Utah does kind of shit the bed. Um, <laughs> yeah. I think that's kind of a UW Stanford situation, which I don't really, I don't see them doing that. But it is Utah, and they do tend to do that once every year. Yeah, you could argue that the loss at USC was that game for them this year, and that was on a a Friday night road game, which is always a a weird game. Uh, I I say that they kind of got eaten by the Pac-12 schedule monster, and like somebody's going to be victimized by that most seasons. I I think Utah, I think the book on them this year, why people were higher on them this year than they have been in other years, is that they still had this amazing dominant defense that was good at every level and had this crazy defensive line but the offense had kind of caught up to it so instead of being a liability it could kind of be like okay it doesn't have to be an amazing offense but it's not going to just disappear for a whole game at least as frequently as it used to and I think if you kind of don't focus too much on that USC game because it was a short week and it was a, a short week road game that they had a ton of penalties in uh that's basically been the arc of their season so far. I, I actually was fairly impressed yeah. by Arizona State's win over Wazoo just because, like you said, I, I didn't really know how much to read into beating Michigan State in kind of a fluky way because Michigan State doesn't look very good. Mm-hmm. And then they beat Cal in the game where they didn't have Garbers, and that seemed to make a huge difference in that game. So it's like, I, does this team, can they actually beat 
a team with a real offense, and they did. They, I mean, say what you will about Washington State's broken defense, but they, yeah, they do have an offense. So they've won in multiple ways, and I thought uh, Jaden Daniels for the first time looked like more than just strictly a game manager who kind of slings the ball around the backfield. So I, I don't know. I, I I will pick Utah, but I think it'll probably be uh, slightly closer than the the two touchdowns that I believe Utah is favored by right now. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I think that's reasonable. I can we we you mentioned uh, we kind of both talked a little bit about Wazoo's struggles lately. They've lost three in a row. The defense has gone off a cliff. Uh, they they parted ways with. I don't think they formally said they fired Tracy Clay's the defensive coordinator. Uh, is there is their season just lost right now, or do they have a, any kind of chance to rebound? I think uh, you know it's probably going to have to start this week, um, and they're probably in a lot of trouble already. Uh, but you know, statistically, they're zero and three in conference. They could still get back at least to bowl eligibility, but they're going to have to get it going pretty quickly. What's your diagnosis for the Cougs the rest of the year? Yeah, I don't think they're totally lost. I think if you reverse some of, you know, if you if you put kind of throw the schedule in a different order, I think this is kind of what we would expect anyway. Um but I think because they started out so strong, granted against pretty darn weak opponents. Um I think everyone all of a sudden got their hopes up even though most of the off season most people had been saying, yeah, this is probably a rebuilding year for them. Um and it looks like those people were right. Um, I think you and I were both among the, that for the most part. Um, so I think, you know, they still very well could be a, I think probably a six win or seven win team. Um, and especially because we've seen this from Wazoo so often where everyone, you know, they have a few losses and people go, oh, okay, this is, they're done. And then they pull out some ridiculousness out of their butt and, come back and get spooky again. Um, you know, if it weren't for last year or the last two years, I mean, that was kind of their, their MO, you know? So I don't, we have precedent to think that they can turn it around. Um, I think, yeah, it just is whether or not their defense can just hold it together enough for the offense to, to function because, you know, you, you, you've seen the weapons that they have there. Um, and they can, it you know they can do a lot so um yeah i think they'll probably be in a not super great bowl uh but you know i don't think it's a lost season for them by the standards that people had been setting before the season which is rebuilding but not terrible you know yeah like a bowl that's sponsored by like a website or a uh gas uh lawnmower company rather than a potato chip or a beer or something so Texaco. Yeah, Texaco. That, that sounds kind yeah. of legitimate. I don't know. The Texaco, the Texaco Cheez It Bowl at Cotton. Yeah. I yeah. don't know. I'm trying to come up with some. At, yeah, live from. But I can't think that fast on my feet, and that's why I don't. The do University that. of Montana Stadium, the uh, Phil Jackson Steakhouse Bowl. That's a real thing. It's not very good. Uh, Yeah, Uh, I I just the last thing I I put on on my part of the outline uh, was I just wanted to comment on how fun C.D. Lamb is to watch that people who watch the Red River shootout, which I was very pleased to hear is now a shootout again instead of a rivalry. They somehow like changed the um, opinion on whether 
school shootings are being caused by the names of college football rivalry games. We've gone back and forth on that as a society in the last five years and decided it wasn't the thing causing it. Uh, but Lamb caught that ball, my God, where he beat, I think, know. five different Texas defenders in uh, down the right sideline. Uh, and Jersey oh, yeah, yeah, that, that was play. that was I, to me the most impressive single play I've seen anybody make all all year. Uh, and I, I I was ranting last week with Rob about how I think it's absurd that Jalen Hurts is being talked about as a Heisman favorite when it's the same offense that just produced two other Heisman Trophy winners who were better than him. But Ceedee Lamb. Is I'm not calling him a system receiver. I think he is the real deal. I think he's really one of the best players in the country. And if he keeps up playing like he did last week, I think he should finish ahead of Hertz in Heisman voting. And I love watching awesome college wide receivers. Yeah, it, yeah, I, 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 I saw that play, and I kind of I had that game on kind of in the background for probably about half of its existence. But yeah, he's definitely one of those people where you're like, what? Why? Like, why do you exist? That shouldn't, why? Yeah. You know, and you can't even use human words to express the what the hell is going yeah, on. Yeah, I, I think the totally. they, that was the, the Fox daytime game of the week, which is, I think, a new thing, and I'm kind of enjoying it, where they put uh, Gus Johnson and Joel Klatt on an early yeah. game. And uh, they had a similar problem describing how he could be human, and Klatt was talking about hanging out with him in the weight room and being so impressed at how how much he could lift for his size and things like that. And it was a very strange conversation. It just sounded really weird, but they were clearly as amazed by him as a human specimen as we are now. So I'm, I'm sinking to Joel Klatt's level. That's all right. He's impressive. Yeah. So let's uh, wrap up. Oh yeah. Talk a little, we'll do our, our non-football related plugs. Um, Last week, we talked about Russian literature and we're not going to do that again this week, unless that's what you want to go with. But uh, if not, no, I, I absolutely do not. Although I did read Dr. Zhivago about a year ago, and that was uh, depressing. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. Um, let's do plugs. Uh, oh, I have a good one. Um, other than the fact that if you're bored either the night before the Oregon game or after the Oregon game, um, I will be doing four shows, I believe at Club Comedy Seattle uh, this Friday and Saturday night. There's one show each night at 8, and I think the other is at 10 or whatever. Come to that if you want or do not. Uh, There's like $10. Who knows? Um, The other thing that this is way more important and does not involve me, uh, the Seattle International Comedy Competition is in its 40th year, and preliminary, there's two preliminary weeks, the first two weeks of November, and a handful of very funny um, Seattle and international comics are in it. Um, so if you're they, the preliminary week, they do one show a night in a bunch of different cities. Uh, it's like, yeah, I don't know which ones it is this year, but in the past, it's been like Seattle, Everett, uh, Bellingham, Tacoma, Olympia, whatever. Um, and there's, yeah, some super funny people on it. Uh, Ariana Ramek, um, I think. Oh, yeah, Rachel Lorendo is super funny. Uh, Mona Concepcion who actually might, I don't know if she's listening to this right now, but she's a UW grad and is super cool and actually told me once that she reads my writing, which was great. Um, but there's some really funny local comics. Uh, I don't, I know there's some international people, I think one from England, one from Japan. Um, they haven't released their actual roster yet. But uh, if you are in any of those cities or even vaguely on the I-5 corridor, 
there will be shows that are in your vicinity and you should go because people who win that or even are in the finals usually end up kind of a big deal. Uh, Mitch Hedberg won in 96. Uh, Peggy Platt won at one point. The last few years people have won all had ended up having late night credits either very shortly thereafter or right before. So frickin' go watch those things because people are funny. The end. That was the longest plug I've ever done. I don't think I took a breath and now I need to inhale. Yeah, we've got to, we'll have to time it so we have a baseline for you to try to uh, eclipse next week for a longer plug. It'll just be a running contest between you and the clock to see. (laughs) Pretty soon it will just be the plug show. I hate the sound of my voice at all times. So when I see that I've been talking for too long, which is the entire time we're recording this, I'm just like, oh god, oh no. And just drowning in vocal interviews. And that, folks, is why we have a podcast. Uh, Very... I wouldn't have done it except for (laughs) Rob or Max asked us. (laughs) Just far too nice to say no to Max. Um, Lastly, uh, I... He's, a lot he's, of people probably watched El Camino over the weekend, the Breaking Bad movie, which was very enjoyable and had that experience where you were watching it. And then either while you were watching it or the next day, saw that Robert Forrester, the actor who was prominently featured in it, died, which is just a very strange timing because he's not somebody who's like in the zeitgeist. But that inspired me to rewatch one of my favorite 90s movies, Jackie Brown, uh, early Tarantino movie with uh, Pam Greer and. Uh, Robert De Niro, Samuel L. Jackson, but Robert Forrester was probably the male lead in the movie. I guess you'd say uh, uh, Pam Greer was probably the overall lead of the movie, but I think he was nominated for an Oscar for that movie. And it's one of my favorites. It's based on an Elmore Letter novel who he writes things that go very well to the screen, including the series Justified. And I don't think it's ever been anything he did was adapted for movies or TV better than this movie. And it is fascinating and it is funny and super interesting plot. It's like two hours and 40 minutes long, which is way too long for like a caper movie. But it's a uh, it flies by because that's kind of how a lot of Tarantino movies are. And uh, if you haven't watched it before, uh, yeah. most people probably a lot of people have probably watch that. But it's on Netflix. so It's free to watch. And it's a great thing to rewatch, even if you have to split it up into like seven nights of watching uh, 25 minutes each. That works, too. But it's very enjoyable. Uh, any closing thoughts before? Oh yeah, go I, ahead. You you yeah. you wanted to plug a few more things. Oh, n- oh no, <laughs> I don't want to plug anything because the thought of plugging one more thing makes me want to barf. But I have an idea for watching that two-hour forty-minute-long thing. Is how about why just two hours and forty minutes? Team it up with Lord of the Rings, do Jackie Brown, Fellowship of the Ring, Two Towers, and the third one, Return of the King, is what that is called. And then just to say that you did it, what do they have in common? Absolutely nothing except for their long as shit. That, um, if anyone does that, I will buy you a beer. I will buy someone just who does one that beer. beer. I, I was having a conversation. You know, I don't think that's, I don't think that's also worth it. Also, grown out of the Breaking Bad movie, Jesse Plemons is in it. Uh, he was in Friday Night Lights. He played, I think his character was named Landry. I always forget his name. Yeah, Landry. I can't, I have so much trouble with the characters' names from that show. What a laugh. Um, yeah, I confuse them all the time. What are the, it's, what are the two women in there? Lila and Twyla? And, oh. It's, yeah. They're like very similar yeah. names, no, and it threw me off for the whole show. And also, for whatever reason, Lila? Landry and Riggins are, are kind of categorized in the same 
species of names in my brain, and I always get those two confused as well. But yes, Jesse Plemons was Landry, and then he was in Breaking Bad, and he played Todd, and then he was in the second season of Fargo, where he played this kind of insane uh, husband and butcher. And I like to imagine that these are all part of the same cinematic universe, and it's actually one character at different stages in his life as he's kind of slowly gone insane and then settled down uh, and married uh, Kirsten Dunst in rural Minnesota in the third one. Um, which is, so if you ever watch those three things in succession, it would take even longer than the Jackie Brown Lord of the Rings marathon, but you'd get kind of the whole life cycle of Jesse Plemons. I think we've gotten a bit off topic. Oh, that should be something. Um, nope. This is now a Jesse Plemons fan cast. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. So maybe he'll be on next week with Cody Pickett. Then tell us how much it sucked. Uh, <laughs> we'll find yeah. out soon. Oh yeah, Cody Pickett's coming. Uh, but with that, no, I think we, we already found out he's coming. Yeah, we've, we've probably uh, officially Here. run out of topics to talk about this week. So uh, I will leave it at that. And say, no, except for the fact that Jacoby Covington just decommitted. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've got our first topic for next week. Uh, thank you all for listening. Yeah. Hopefully we'll be here next week celebrating either a blowout win or a 24-21 uh, victory over Oregon where Peyton Henry makes the field goal as time expires to totally redeem himself. In the meantime, have a great week and go Washington. Go.